Well, um, hello and welcome to the Mobility Podcast. Um, I'm Greg Rogers with Securing America's Future Energy, um, and today I have my uh, lovely, lovely co-host. Uh, Greg Rodriguez with Best Best and Krieger. I didn't know I was that lovely today, oh, you're but pretty it must lovely. be my new jacket. But it won't be as lovely as your um, disclaimer before we start. That's right. Views are our own. Yeah, that's right. Um, and today I'm excited to uh, have our uh, friend David Zipper here. Um, he is a resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund, among many, many other things. Um, and also is a prolific city lab writer. Um, so David, I'll, I'll let you jump in and uh, just explain sort of how you got in Transpo and uh, what you're doing now, and then we'll get into the fun stuff. Sure, thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. Um, I have sort of taken an idiosyncratic path into uh, the transportation world, which I've learned a lot of people have when you start asking them this question. And for myself, I've always been interested in cities. That's really how I got started. Even back in college, I started a, a nonprofit organization, Inner City Philadelphia, to train lower-income workers in North Philly to, to be house painters out in the suburbs. So I was always interested in city policy. And uh, later on, I uh, did a variety of economic development roles in nonprofits, at a think tank, got a planning degree, an MBA, and uh, worked in economic development, first in the Bloomberg administration in New York, leading... A, a new program that I designed that uh, was really focusing on, on training entry-level workers for more highly skilled, better-paying jobs. And then uh, here in Washington, where I live now, I was the uh, head of economic development strategy and business development for two mayors, uh, uh, Adrian Fenty and then Vincent Gray. And I ended up, especially under Mayor Gray, really being the, the, the guy in charge of a lot of the innovation work in the city and supporting the tech sector. And I, it was then that you know Capital Bike Share emerged with some great leaders at, at DDOT, people like Gabe Klein, and Scott Kubley. It was also when Ride Hail emerged, and it was hugely controversial in DC when that happened. Uh, the woman who was in charge of Uber DC at the time, I worked closely with to try to help her out, a woman named Rachel Holt, who later uh, became the whole head of, of Uber North America and is now the head of all mobility services globally for Uber. She got her start right here in DC, wow. circa 2011, 2012. And I realized, like, first of all, there's really no clear line between city transportation and economic development. I think that a good mobility network really does enhance a city's economic development prospects. You can see that today, I think, with Amazon's HQ2 search, which really required that a city demonstrate a strong public transportation network to be a viable candidate. And I also just realized that the startups were having a lot of fun in the transportation world, and I got really into that. So I then worked for several years after being with the city at a startup hub called 1776, where I was managing director for uh, smart cities and mobility, working with hundreds of startups around the world in smart cities and mobility, as well as with some big companies like Uber and Xerox, now Conduent, on innovation issues, and, and lots of mayors and transportation directors, and became began to appreciate just how uh, software is, is really transforming um, how people can, can navigate cities and creating opportunities for entrepreneurs uh, that I find really exciting, but also just sort of scrambling the playbook we've had for decades of how people navigate cities, right? With fixed modes in 1970, they're pretty much the same in 2000. And now, Jesus, every la next, next week, you feel like you have like, you know, electrified unicycles or something. 
Um, so when I left 1776 a year and a half ago, I decided I really wanted to zero in on, on these topics, and that's when I became a resident fellow at the German Marshall Fund, a think tank based here in D.C. and in Berlin, where I lead the Transatlantic Urban Mobility Initiative, looking at urban mobility issues in the U.S. and Europe. And, um, and I've got a couple other sort of interesting uh, sort of perches as well. As you mentioned, I write a lot with CityLab about the future of urban mobility, sometimes also in platforms like Slate or Fast Company. And uh, most recently, maybe we'll get to this later, I've been helping APTA, the American Public Transportation Association, think about how to incorporate new mobility into all the work that they do because public transportation agencies are sort of freaking out about the rise of uh, ride hail and scooters and all these other things and, and aren't really sure how to respond. So that's been an interesting role as well. So, uh, so that's my path and how I ended up uh, with multiple hats, but all sort of around the future of cities and the future of mobility. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think I buried the lead here on this episode um, because we've uh, been planning to do this for a while and I've been calling it Critical Moss. And sort of the way we started sort of discussing this episode was talking about what is mobility as a service, decoding the BS right behind it. Let's start with your thoughts on like what is Moss and um, why is there so much confusion around what Moss is? Yeah, so Moss is a concept I sort of latched onto um, a year and a half ago because I was hearing a lot about it when I went to Europe uh, to go to mobility events, and I was hearing a lot about it in America, and I didn't know what the hell it was, and I thought it was me. And now I know it's not me. <laughs> um, I feel like mobility as a service is the kind of concept, kind of like smart cities, yeah. where if you ask 10 people to define it, you'll get 20 different definitions. Mm -hmm. And it also has become an easy way for companies to sell their stuff uh, by marketing it as a, a Moss product or a smart cities product you know, a few years ago. You still see that sometimes now. So, um, so, for, so one thing is I think I zeroed in on Moss thinking, okay, this is interesting. I think there's something potentially real here, but I want to see if I could cut through the bullshit and uh, be able to sort of give an explanation of what it is to myself and then potentially also write about it. Um, and I actually did write an article that I, that, um, I, I think CLAB published last fall, uh, sort of zeroing in on one particular um, Moss sort of case study that you hear a lot about, which is Helsinki, Finland, and an app they have there called WIM, which I'm happy to talk about, but I just was so tired of hearing people in the U.S. and Europe hold up Helsinki as the future of transportation, because when I went to Scandinavia to give a talk at an EU event last September, uh, I was meeting people from Finland and meeting people who'd done research in this, and they were like, we don't know what we're doing. This is not something that's real yet. And so that's what led, led to that article, which I'm happy to get to. But maybe you want to start with just sort of talking about what Moss is. Should we begin there and try to like decode it? Yeah, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. There's a lot that's worthwhile behind the ideas of Moss. It, 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 it starts from a good place. Mm -hmm. And in my view, the, the motivation behind Moss is to sort of knit together all the various modes, and there are so many more modes now than there were a few years ago, uh, that people can use if they're not driving their own car. So the idea is we can actually make these, collect these modes collectively more competitive vis-a-vis -vis the single occupancy vehicle if we can knit them all together. And the way you can knit them together through Moss, these are sort of the concepts, the way I think about it. This is David Zipper speaking. There's no Moss body that I know of that has officially decreed what it is. Actually, there may be six different Moss bodies that have officially decreed what it is, but I'm just telling you how I think about it. But I think there are several elements that go into Moss. One is, is multimodal trip planning, meaning you go to one place, an app, 
um, or a website to be able to navigate a trip uh, and plan a trip across multiple modes. Maybe you start in transit, then you connect to ride hail, you could throw in a scooter there, uh, it could be any, any of a variety of modes. And there's a number of apps that provide this now, right? But the, what there's a lot fewer that provide is another big component of MOS, which is multimodal ticketing, meaning that you can buy in one fell swoop a ticket to get from here to wherever you want to go across modes. So you don't have to go first on transit and then on Uber or whatever else to buy your ticket to get from point A to point B. Mm-hmm. There's a couple more, though. One of them, those are one and two, trip planning and, and, and ticketing that are multimodal. Number three, in my view, is customer support which is the idea that if you are going to plan your trip across transit and ride hail and you buy your ticket across transit and ride hail, what are you going to do or what, who's going to help you if after you take your transit trip and you're ready to take ride hail, there's no ride hail available? Is there a number to call? Are you out of luck? Uh, there should be some mechanism to provide customer support and get you on your way. That's an important component of Moss as well. And then finally, the fourth one, that I think of is subscriptions. The idea that you can pay some amount of money to get a basket of mobility goods that you can then use to travel across a variety of modes. So that's how I think of of what mobility as a service is in my mind, uh, at least conceptually. And there's a few different ways that it can be uh, that it can, that it that it can actually be be structured in practice, but maybe I'll pause there. Do you, does that make? Do you guys agree? I'm curious with that sort of sort of conceptual framework. Well, while you were speaking, I went to the end all, be all source of everything, which is Wikipedia. Which is yeah, that's that's never wrong. <laughs> Wikipedia is never wrong. So I, I ascribe by the rule of two. So Wikipedia would be one. You would be two. And they they define this uh, mobility service describes a shift away from personally owned modes of transportation and towards mobility solutions that are consumed as a service. So I think you're on track. This is enabled by combining transportation services from public and private transportation providers through a unified gateway that creates and manages the trip, which uses which users can pay for with a single account. Users can pay per trip or a monthly fee for a limited distance. The key concept behind Moss is to offer travelers mobility solutions based on their travel needs. So I think you did a pretty good job. Wow. I feel pretty good. <laughs> I wonder if you did, improved. You, did you edit this before? Yeah, did you I did not. No. I feel all right. I feel all right. Thank you for that. Yeah. Validation. I like it. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do want to pick up on a couple of themes, both from Wikipedia and yourself. <laughs> Is, uh, <laughs> In that order? Yeah. And, 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 and you talked about working with the American Public Transportation Association, but, you know, one of the challenges that I see is how do we get that partnership between the public and private sector if this is all going to be one service and these two sides working together where some see the two in competition yeah that's right and i think to answer that question first should should offer what i think of as is a second framework which sure. is sort of like the three sort of versions of moss that we're starting to see in their sort of primordial uh emergence yeah. if you will um because you're right, you actually jumped ahead in my mind to one of the key issues around Moss, which is attention with transit. Uh, but but the first one that we see, and we see this, I think, in the U.S. the most right now, and that's Moss or some version of Moss or a Moss-like program provided by a private service provider itself. So Uber and Lyft are both now incorporating at least information about how to na- how to to get transit within into their apps. 
there was an announcement recently that Uber is working with RTD and Masabi in in uh, in Denver right. to eventually allow ticketing uh, for for Denver's public transportation system within the Uber app. Of course, you can use jump bikes within the Uber app, mm-hmm. but you can't use them within Lyft. <laughs> and you can use Capital Bike Share and the various other uh, uh, pu- public bike share networks that are part of uh, the the Motivate network that Lyft acquired within the Lyft. You eventually will use it within the Lyft app, although mm-hmm. you can't yet. There's I can't see any scenario where that goes over to Uber. Um, so by the way, that actually I would say that is, in my view, a walled garden that both Uber and Lyft are creating. Mm-hmm. Which is another, which is something I wrote about in Fast Company, um, the potential danger of creating these walled gardens that could uh, could basically nudge consumers toward one mode versus another. Is transit? Is could Uber conceivably nudge people away from transit toward ride hail, which is going to be more profitable? Potentially, could they nudge you even toward Uber instead of uh, Uber Pool, which is more profitable? I would think yes. They're already doing that with Uber Rewards, mm-hmm. their frequent traveler program that gives you more incentive uh, and, bon- and bonus points if you use uh, a mode other than Uber Pool. So that worries me. That's that's one version of Mosto is this provider piece. The second piece is 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 uh, when you have a third party company that brings together these modes in that uh, app, and you can see that in the U.S. in Transit app, or Transit as it's called now. Um, sort of in Europe, there's a well-known company that I, I mentioned before, in, in based in Helsinki called Moss Global, that's created an app called Wim, that's deployed in Helsinki and now also. I mean, I don't know all the cities, but I know that they are. Uh, making efforts in Antwerp, in Birmingham, in England, in uh, Singapore, and they've made interest in, or expressed interest in coming to North America. And there, the idea is you have a, a software company that brings in public transit and the various private modes into that uh, new, sort of quote unquote neutral party where you can do everything we talked about before with Moss. The challenge is how do you actually? compel those companies or transit to be part of it right. like for example in in helsinki with whim which is probably the most advanced of these examples uh uber just said no nah, we don't want to so not they're not part of it right mm-hmm. so that's the second model uh, and then the third and final one is one that we're very seldom seeing but we there's just an announcement last week about berlin uh doing this but that's when you have the transit agency itself creating the moss platform and uh, there's a company called Traffy, I believe, that's created an app for Berlin that incorporates various private modes. And I think the challenge there is, by and large, we see this in America, right? How, can you name a transit agency's app that is awesome and everyone loves to use? I can't. They're usually really clunky. Yeah, the Wamada app is pretty miserable to use. It's terrible. Um, the train will come before the page actually loads. Once I actually choose the station that I'm at, there's no way to have yeah. So I mean, do you, you so do you trust a transit agency to actually have the best in class Moss platform? Nope. Most I, people mm-hmm. don't right now in this country at least. So those are the three uh, sort of sort of I think practical uh, sort of buckets that a Moss solution could come through. Mm-hmm. And so to get back. Um, Greg Rodriguez. I can't even say Greg R here. I've got two Greg R's <laughs> up okay. against me. It's like a um, struggle, really. It really gets confused all the time. Yeah, yeah. You're both brunettes. I mean, this is this is this is hard <laughs> for me. It's hard. You, it's hard for me. But um, but yeah, for transit, I think this is a real question because um, you know, like 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 uh, you know, with, with the first version I mentioned, when you have Uber or Lyft or a company like that creating Moss. You know, you could be you're disintermediated as a transit agency. There's every reason to think that 
that that company may nudge the customer away from buying a transit ticket. And for that third party option, like with, with WIM or with Transit App, there, there's the risk of actually, they're gonna eventually charge transit agencies potentially for, for ticketing, which takes operating dollars that are very scarce away from transit agencies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and for example, in Helsinki, HSL, the transit provider there, um, has, has really dragged its feet with whim. They've sort of been required to play along by the federal government, but they don't like it and they've not made it easy. Huh. And how is that happening? Is there just sort of this slowdown in terms of advertising it and allowing, making sure that people see it? What does it look like when someone's sort of slow rolling? Uh, well, Moss platform well like in the Finland example, what's happened there is HSL uh, has dragged its feet with making it possible to get a monthly pass mm-hmm. on public transportation if you're a WIM subscriber, mm-hmm. which means that it's just it, it's super easy. If you have that monthly pass, you just sort of swipe it and go when you're getting on a, a, a bus or a train or something of the sort in Helsinki. But what, what uh, HSL has required, and I actually don't know if this may have just changed in the last few weeks, but what, what HSL did require was that for, for WIM, if you're going to use HSL on a subscription basis, which gives you unlimited access to public transportation, you had each time you rode, you had to buy a separate ticket. So think of how irritating that is. Uh, I would not do that. Yeah, well, a lot of people aren't doing it. If you look at at, at the numbers, um, you know, it's a little hard to, to, to totally figure it out. But when I was writing the article I did for City Lab about about WIM, there is no way, as of last October, November, that uh, WIM was fulfilling more than 0.5% of trips in Helsinki that were completed by any mode other than a car. Like it's a tiny proportion of overall trips, so that's an example of, of of how one agency has, in my from what I can understand, uh, made it harder for a Moss solution by a third party to catch on. Wow, and you know, going back to your point around, you know, if if you do have a, a company like Uber potentially integrated with Transit, you know, and you mentioned that you know this might push people towards more ride hailing use. Is that because when you look at the app, it's going to say transit is 15 minutes away and you can take an Uber or Lyft in the next two minutes and then you kind of do your own value calculation? Because that's one of the advantages I see in potentially mobility as a service is I can say I, you know, I want to take a trip from here to Reagan National and I want, you know, three different options for based on how fast I need to get there. And so I can do my own value type adjustments in my mind so am I willing to pay five dollars and that has me taking a scooter to metro and then you know walking the rest of the way into the into the gate to the airport or is it you know you just get an uber xl and that's twenty dollars and I'm there in 15 minutes so I think that could happen but I actually am more worried about a a more simple outcome (laughs) uh, with the uber or lyft model of moss which, is, which has to do with the idea of a walled garden. So walled garden, if you're not familiar with the concept, and you probably have folks who listen to the podcast who aren't, it's pretty simple. Just think of, like, if you have an iPhone, uh, you, you're familiar. You go in the App Store, which, by the way, is a walled garden, and let's say you type in note-taking app because you want to download one. Well, Apple curates which app is going to rise to the top of of your list. It curates which reviews are going to be viewable and which ones aren't. Maybe it kicks out an app it doesn't like. So, so apply it. So that's a very powerful position for Apple, by the way, right? To be the curator of that walled garden. So let's let's now imagine Uber 
as the curator of the walled garden. I have nothing against Uber as a particular company. I'm just giving an example here. Uber could do a lot of things very subtly or not so subtly to basically make transit more or less viewable on the app. It can do things, and, and these apps do do things to make a particular mode like, like Uber XL or Uber Pool or whatever more or less viewable. Right. Uh, and or just change the color. Which one you see first? There's lots of things that could be done that won't necessarily be obvious to someone who's using the app. But if I'm a transit agency executive, that would give me pause. And I'd be a little nervous how that's going to play out. And I just jotted down two words. One, I go to antitrust immediately. Uh, just thinking through, okay, so just these companies are making our decisions for us. And then that makes us think about Google and Amazon right now, which are those very discussions going on. And then two, and then it makes me think utility. Uh, and so this, I think Moss, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself again, which I tend to do, but Mari thinking through, you know, is transportation in, is it inevitably, inevitably become a utility? So that is a provocative idea, and it's one that it, you start to hear some very smart people think seriously about. Right. I think of my friend Kevin Webb, who runs Shared Streets, uh, which is a really interesting nonprofit. And also, you know, you shout out to Molly, too. Yeah. Molly Pallone, who left uh, uh, NACTO, who's doing a lot of great work there, too. Molly's so, terrific. They're both terrific. Get them both on, yeah. That'd be um, Kevin has, has talked to me a lot about his ideas of transportation ultimately becoming a utility yeah. where effect and by the way what that what that could imply we should ask, ask him he's thought more about this than i have but the way i think about it is is with a utility we basically acknowledge as a society there should be a very limited number of providers and we allow for for that to happen which is sort of monopoly power you just regulate the hell out of it right. to make sure that they aren't making inappropriate uh, profits or acting in a way that is detrimental to society so ultimately, could urban mobility evolve in that direction? I think it could. And I think for those who are really thinking about where we're going to be in 10 years, or even five years, it's a really interesting question to wade through. I think another way it comes in, too, that um, we've been thinking a lot about is it's a potential easy way to pay for infrastructure. I mean, you can complain all you want about that extra charge on your water bill, but you still want the water and it comes to your tap. And even then, we're not still we're not paying our full value for the clean water coming to our tap. And even better yet, in that, like, like we, we have what, w WASA here, right? Is the, the, the water utility here in Washington where we all sit right now. Um, that utility is charged with optimizing investments right. in a way that maximizes overall uh, benefits to everyone using the network. Wouldn't it be great if we had some entity that was deciding what is the optimized way of allocating scarce curb space and street space across all the various modes? Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing that outside of a very few cities where you have a transportation authority that has that kind of power. This is another thing I wrote about um, in, uh, in City Lab saying it, it, with the rise of new mobility services, it may be time to do as TransLink does in the Vancouver region and actually create authorities that are empowered with money and with regulations to oversee all modes instead of actually having this sort of balkanized system we usually do in the U.S. where you have a for-hire vehicle agency separate from a transit agency, separate from a Department of Transportation managing streets. And that changes state by state, which makes it even more complicated. It does. I'm not pretending no. that this is easy at all, but no, look, at, look at London, at TFL, Transport for London, and how they've really become a global leader 
in terms of, of integrated mobility and be able to move quickly as they want to promote modes like biking, we, we really struggle to do that here in the U.S. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. I'm actually saying what, what you're saying is a good idea. And even just in the world of autonomous vehicles, working with state DOTs across the country, even then you have a different kind of patchwork across the country in that some DOTs also have uh, oversight authority over DMVs or it's separate. And then you go with California, you have this extra layer with the California Public Utilities Commission now regulating ride sharing. So now we're talking about the subscription services for Waymo now being under CPUC, California DMV, and then California law. Yeah, and the problem comes down to the fact that we're not really talking about what the... It it prevents agencies from focusing on what their goals are, right? Instead, you end up with the DMVs saying, we just want to register vehicles. That's right. Uh, for higher re- regulators saying we just want to regulate for higher vehicles. You know, trans agencies saying we just want to run the trains on time. Um, and I, I think that this one thing we've talked about before, David, is there's sort of this lack of a unified vision or, or authority um, in transportation. Um, so how do we how do we get there? Well, that's right. I mean, I know you speak only for yourself, Greg <laughs> Rogers, but uh, you are you do work at Safe. Um, a very reasonable question, I think, for you and your colleagues to ask if you do put that hat back on is who in City X in the U.S. is actually ensuring that all transportation policy across the region is optimized to pursue climate goals. Yeah. Right? And what you just described, you've got everybody protecting their fiefdom, and who actually is looking at the trade-offs, saying, actually, we need to use this, this scarce street lane for bus rapid transit, because if we do that, we'll be able to get the most number of people away from the single occupancy vehicles that are the most polluting. And we have a regional goal of achieving our, our goals associated with, with, with the Paris Accords or what have you. Right. No, who, who, is in, who has that? You could, I guess, right. say an MPO, Metropolitan Planning Organization. They don't have the sort of, to do it. They don't have any money. Yeah. Right. They just sort of do the planning. So th- I think that, that this is, if you care about the environment, which so many of us do who think about urban mobility a lot, um, you, know, you, you really have to pause and think about maybe we need to rethink governance, as wonky and boring a topic as it seems, in order to ensure that the modes that are in the most climate friendly really do get precedence. Mm-hmm. And I guess to, to really unpack that, let's, let's use the BRT example, right? Taking the one lane and converting into BRT, um, you have that, that street is regulated by probably the, DOT, state, the city DOT. And then you have the transit agency that want, might want to run that BRT system, but probably has struggled to even get the authority to exactly. run that lane for a long time. Exactly. And then you have the actual, um, either the mayor's office or whatever the environmental offices in the city that's setting those environmental goals. And these, these folks just don't have the overlapping authorities that are necessary. That's exactly right. And then meanwhile, you could have the for hire vehicle agent, uh, agency mm-hmm. that's listening to the taxis and the ride hail companies say, well, wait, you can't create that as a bus lane because we need to be able to drop off legally our, our passengers there. And that screws everything up. Like somebody needs to basically not make everybody play nice, mm-hmm. but effectively say, look, given the societal goals we have as a region, here's the trade-offs that we're going to need to make across modes to optimize the, our pursuit of of this is of the values that we have as a, as a city or as a region. Right. And effectively, this comes down to every city or region basically sort of needs its own mobility uh, philosopher king. Um, someone who's going to be sort of that that centralized authority that's going to really be looking at all those goals. So Mobility guru? The mobility guru. Yeah, that's better. That's more gender neutral. I think there's another element to this that I welcome your all's take is, you know, kind of the people role. 
And so, like, all that sounds great, but then there's going to be the political backlash of the people that are like, you're taking away my lane. And so maybe to tie it back to, uh, you know, critical mass that we're talking about today, is, is mass an opportunity to kind of, to hopefully change people's mindset around getting out of their car? Um, welcome, any thoughts from our mobility guru here? Yeah, I mean, you just put your finger on one of the biggest challenges in all of this. And I say this as a former city official is that uh, there is this cognitive disconnect that so many uh, very progressive people have where they support pursuing climate goals, they support, um, you know, in concept public transportation, but all hell breaks loose if you dare consider taking away a, a lane of, of street that they use to drive their car on or a parking spot that's public. It's public land. It's not theirs. <laughs> that from time to time they leave their vehicle on near their, their house. And I struggle there because I think those people are just wrong. I really do. And I feel the, the, and the tide gradually shifting against them. But it's a ve- still a very brave city official who can look those residents in the eye and they are the majority of residents in unless you're unless you're in New York City or you know maybe DC a place like that they're going to be the majority of residents and basically say look guys here's why you're going to have to get used to a new normal um, I think it's really hard um, and, and and it's true like what you do see pushback against with these sort of the, the few examples we do have in North America of integrated mobility uh, governance, you know, TransLink in Vancouver, uh, SFMTA in San Francisco mm-hmm. that oversees Muni as a transit provider, as well as the, the curbs and bikes. Uh, you see the local politicians, the city councilors who hate it. They hate that much power in one consolidated agency. And I kind of feel like they just, my attitude is screw them. I think they're wrong. I simply think they're wrong. Um, so I, I think it's we've got to be for those of us who believe in in use in leveraging urban mobility as a important tool to improve cities and to improve the environment. We just have to be in this fight for the long fight. Know we're going to lose some battles, and 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 eventually believe that we'll we'll win them. And do you have any thoughts? You know, everything that we're talking about, you know, sounds like it works great in a urban core. So then we get out to more of the rural areas where arguably, you know, there are, is a little more disconnection and there is more of a transit need. And, and that's something I struggle with with every conference I'm at, every presentation I give. You get that rural question and where are the opportunities around all these emerging technologies there? Any thoughts on Moss or there's any, and, and it might be, I don't know. I mean, every Moss example I've seen has focused on a very dense urban core. Uh, I have never seen Moss for the Mississippi Delta. Yeah. I've never heard anyone talk about Moss for the Mississippi Delta, except for Mississippi senators and their staff who say, well, wait, we have to have something for the rural population too. And and I understand that that's a reasonable perspective to have. The, the challenge is just it gets into uh, dollars and cents. Yeah. And you have to have a density of ride demand to be able to make these kinds of solutions work, to be able to knit together the patchwork of multimodal trips. And if you're in the exurbs or if you're in a rural area, it's just very, very hard to do it. So uh, I, I think that there may be solutions that, that are applicable in the exurbs and in rural America. I don't think that's where the innovation is going to happen first or even second. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you a little bit about your background and, uh, you know, 
I hear you have a unique uh, urban uh, mobility perspective from your hometown. Yeah. So well, I'll turn that back on you guys. Uh, so I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was in the 90s. And at that point, Chapel Hill was always on the cusp of being the next Seattle for music. It was always going to be the next Seattle. It never was the next Seattle. We never had the next Nirvana or Pearl Jam. It was very sad. But we had a, I had a good time. Did you have Michael Jordan? We did have Michael Jordan. We did. I used to say that uh, it's a good college town. So I felt like the, uh, the local economy ran on uh, Mexican restaurants and used bookstores, which was not a bad And coffee shops. It's not a bad place to, uh, to, to be growing up. But from a mobility perspective, I'll ask you guys, can you tell me what it makes Chapel Hill especially unique among all cities and towns in, in the United States? What about Chapel Hill Transit is totally unique? Wow. The two Gregs are looking at each other, utterly baffled right now. It's like they're making—they're either in love or confused. It's really funny to watch. It's always a little bit of both. Mutual <laughs> <laughs> admiration. Off to uh, plugging the Jeopardy music here. Yeah, <laughs> Chapel Hill Transit. What makes it special? I'm going to go on a limb and say it's there's something about there's like three universities involved in that area so maybe we just say like it's the only system run by the university it's not unrelated but it, but you're making it more that'd be more boring than it is I'll, I'll even give you a blank I'll say Chapel Hill is the largest city or town in the US that provides blank puppies <laughs> I did get some puppies in Chapel Hill <laughs> but I think there's other places that do it too um Shared electric autonomous pogo sticks? No, no, that's not even close, I'm afraid. It, Chapel Hill is, I don't think you guys are going to get it. Uh, it's actually the largest town by far in the U.S. that provides free public transit. Chapel Hill Transit is free to use. Oh. and the re- So Greg R., Rodriguez, sorry, you're both Greg R., okay. uh, you were on the right track because the reason why Chapel Hill Transit's able to do that is because uh, UNC, University of North Carolina, based there, uh, is is a huge uh, employer and obviously hub for you know, I guess when schools in session is probably about a, a third to a, maybe a fourth of overall population. So they provide a lot of money to the system to just make it free. And you and if you look abroad, you can find whole countries like Luxembourg and Estonia where transit's free. I actually wrote an article about this as well in in, uh, in City Lab a few weeks ago. Uh, but in America, Chapel Hill is the largest town. It's only sixty thousand people that provides no cost public transit on its buses. Wow. Um, and so does that? I don't know if you know the numbers behind this, but. If you look at then Chapel Hill versus other transit agencies, do they have a higher ridership as a result? They do. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they do have higher ridership. And there's a lot of data from Europe uh, of, of when cities went free, like Tallinn, um, that you see spiking ridership. It could be anywhere from 10% to a multiple, actually, of riders. And it's quite controversial whether this is something that is ultimately appropriate or not. Many argue that it actually ends up creating extra costs that the local that, that's too much for the local uh, region to shoulder because when transit's free you have so many more riders you have to hire more people to run more buses and buy more buses and mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 of course you're getting no operating revenue at all to uh, to support that but um, but for to me I just as an aside I find this whole question of free public transit to be really interesting because I think that it's going to become a hot topic in the next decade in this country, in the United States, partly for climate reasons, 
but partly also because of civil rights reasons. Um, here in DC, you guys may have seen that WMATA, the transit agency in, in this region, uh, just recently was forced to decriminalize fare evasion because of very serious issues around racial discrimination. Upwards of 90% of people caught for not paying for their fare in WMATA were black. And uh, the, the council, DC council voted to uh, make it a, a, basically decriminalize it so you don't go to jail for it anymore. And the, the fine is far, far less. The mayor vetoed it and, and then the council of voter veto. And the thing is, these issues of discrimination in fare collection are actually getting worse because the trend now with transit in, city, in agencies in cities like Portland and in Cleveland is to go toward a proof of purchase system where you don't actually buy a ticket ahead of time and scan it. You do buy a ticket, but you just sort of hold on to it. You just board the bus or board the train, and then if somebody stops and asks to see it, you have to show it. The problem is when you do that, it's very easy for someone to say, well, wait, why are you asking me to show my ticket and not that guy over there? So you have even more racial issues. And in Portland and Cleveland, the agencies there have lost constitutional challenges to the proof of payment systems for discrimination purposes. So this is nasty and it's ugly and it's bad. And it's one more piece of a puzzle in my mind that leads me to think, well, maybe there's a, a future where, especially in a city like Cleveland, where you're recovering maybe 20% of operating costs through fare box, maybe eventually uh, Cleveland's going to say, you know what, forget it. We're just going to, we don't want to be accused of racism. We're just going to stop collecting operating or the fares at all, and we'll find other ways of supporting the, the limited uh, money we were pulling in from fares anyway. Yeah, I mean, it all, it all, to me, it factors together. It's, it's this issue. It's the, it's the questions around, around, um, uh, around the environment and the increasing interest there, and the movement away from, from sort of having a user-free approach toward transportation, thinking maybe we need to have a demand management approach. Uh, I would not be shocked if um, this idea of free public transit isn't quite as crazy if we sat down and had this conversation seven years ago, seven years from now, than it, it seems right now. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. It, it brings up a couple points in my mind is it allows, you know, potentially transit workers to, to do their job more efficiently and not focus on, you know, trying to target people, bias, all that stuff. You just and you save about. money from the collection uh, machinery too. Cubic is a company that creates, makes, sells very expensive fare collection equipment. You don't need to buy it anymore if it's free. Right. And then the other, you know, thing you made me think of is just, you know, we our firm does a lot of telecommunications work and just think about, you know, public broadcasting system, you know, your point around equity and access and, and still providing those, you know, channels for free for related to public services. It, it, it makes a lot of sense in line with our discussion around a potential utility and uh, helps address some of these questions around equity that we're all struggling with as well. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess to get down to the bottom of this, um, what does the perfect moss look like? Is there sort of this perfect moss structure? I'm ready to type into Wikipedia right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you can hold off because I'm not going to give you anything to type in. I don't know. I really don't know, um, and I don't know because, first of all, although I've heard, I've been at lots of events and lectures where I've heard people say, aha, we have the proven moss solution from City X, usually Helsinki. Looking into it, there is no proven example of where it's worked. So is it alchemy? I, I, well, you know what? I, I don't know. I like, certainly want to watch moss and see how it evolves, mm -hmm. but i got to be honest with you. Um, 
sort of like with autonomous vehicles, I worry that Moss as a concept could crowd out some of the the space in the civ civic discourse that we really need now to take the steps that we know work yeah. in terms of getting people away from taking single occupancy vehicles. Mm -hmm. Like if that's what ultimately we're trying to do to get people to use other modes, it's pretty simple. We know what works. Start gradually taking away parking spots. Mm -hmm. Start start creating more bus rapid transit lines. Create protected bike lanes. This is not rocket science. We know these steps work. Mm -hmm. Moss feels sometimes we have to be we have to caution against a uh, sort of technophilia, mm -hmm. this sense that technology is so powerful now that it can solve problems without forcing us to make trade-offs mm -hmm. that people just get uncomfortable with, like the idea of do we allocate this street lane for private cars or for buses or yeah. for, for bikes. My attitude is let's let's have some courage to to make those decisions and let's maybe reorganize mm -hmm. how our, our 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 mobility network is managed to make those decisions and let's not see MOS or AVs or anything really as panaceas because I don't think any of them will be. Yeah, well, and I totally agree in that uh, technophilia is not going to solve any of our problems. And you know, I spend a lot of time on AVs and sort of a passion. And one of the things that always stands out to me is public officials will always start off saying, oh, we're really concerned about AVs, they're going to just overrun all of our streets, etc." And then when we start discussing what the solutions are um, to avoid AVs overrunning the streets and ending up in another highway hell that we've had for the past 60, you know, whatever years, um, a lot of those tools are tools we have right now. Um, we already have the tools to make sure that, and, and whatever we have in our system now, um, or tools that are at our disposal right now to avoid the negative impacts of AVs, we're going to have 10 years from now. And we should be starting to use them right now uh, to move away from the automobile um, or just you know, single occupancy vehicles. Um, but it takes political courage. Um, and it takes finding that middle ground between um, using the technology that's available, whether it's MOS, whether it's AVs, or whether it's, honestly, it's just increasing transit service availability and unbundling the car, unbundling the trip. Um, but we got to find how to get there. Um, and, and I think that there's a danger um, if we focus too much on embracing the AVs or being afraid of the AVs. Sorry, energy should be on what we have at our disposal right now. Yeah, I think that's totally right. You know, there's a common framework that you hear a lot. I think Robin Chase has popularized it. The idea of heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. Like, well, AVs could be heaven, AVs could be hell. And my attitude is, and I actually said this when I was on a panel with Robin, who's very smart. I was in Atlanta a couple of months ago at Georgia Tech, uh, a thing with Newsweek. As I said, you know, honestly, my personal version of hell with AVs is that all this hoopla around AVs crowds out the conversations we have to be happening, have to have now yeah. about the changes we need to make to infrastructure use and land use and mm -hmm. policy and regulations to enable more multimodal transportation. Because we all know when you look at the data on climate change, we don't have time to wait. Right. I don't care if AVs are coming 10 years from now to our cities in a widespread way or 40 years from now. I don't care. Either way, I want change now. I, need, I think we need change mm -hmm. now. And I worry my version of hell, if you will, uh, is that, that AVs, because they're the sexy, technophiliac idea, mm -hmm. are going to dominate the discourse that we really need to apply mm -hmm. toward the simple tools around creating complete streets and making it easy to, to travel without a personal vehicle. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, I know, after this discussion in seven years, I'm looking forward to Moss, 
free transit and more aerial ropeway transit. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> Terrific. Well, on that note, um, I, I would like to know, uh, David, there have been a lot of buzzy terms in transpo, but we had ITS... Intelligent transportation systems in the 90s, right? We had smart cities a few years back. Moss, what's next? <laughs> what's next? After I've thrown rocks at what we already have now? You're asking the wrong person. I feel like sometimes, maybe it's because I'm writing more. I feel you know how like, you think of journalists as like curmudgeons? I've become more curmudgeonly in, uh, in how I think about these things. But no, I do work with a lot of, of, um, of, of startups uh, that are doing particularly, I think, creative and innovative stuff in the transportation space. And i got to tell you the truth. What gets me the most fired up isn't one of these, like, big sort of trendy terms, you know, AVs, MOS, and what, what have you. What I get really excited about is the ap- application of, of technology that, that's being used in other frameworks to transportation to solve particular challenges. I'll give you one example of a company that I know really well that I, I think does great work. And that's a company out of California called Swiftly. I don't know if it's ever come across your radar screen. But I'm sure, you know, I bet many folks listening can identify with the experience of getting on an app and being told, or using Google for that matter, being told that the next bus or the next train is coming in five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you go and wait, and then five minutes passes, and then ten minutes passes, and it hasn't come. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that's so bad is because, you know, is, is that... Uh, transit agencies have have had like had mass. I won't go huge detail, but they have very antiquated systems of providing any kind of information of where the actual vehicles are, mm-hmm. and Swiftly uses big data algorithms and a variety of, of data sources to to massively improve the information that a transit agency and therefore riders have about where exactly the bus or the or the train is, mm-hmm. so that. That that like ugh, experience of being seven minutes off and what you when you thought the train or bus was going to arrive mm-hmm. goes away. That may seem simple, and you may shrug, shrug, someone may shrug their shoulders. I think it's game changing because that's mm-hmm. actually how you improve the quality of the actual experience on this mode that we all want to see succeed. So I may not be answering your question at all because you asked mm-hmm. me like, what's the next huge trendy thing? Yeah. I'm less interested in that than I am, or what are the very specific ways. We can make public transportation and bikes and scooters, so I think they're all good, a little bit easier and better to use. That's what I get fired up about, what what technology can do. So it seems like it's not just big data, but it's just smart data or accurate data. Smart applications of data Mm -hmm. and the cloud as well. And there's a number of the companies I get fired up about have sort of zeroed in on a piece of the transportation world. And by the way, transportation is a slow-moving industry in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. kind of like real estate, another field I've done some work in, where you sort of realize, like, okay, if we apply the cloud or we apply data analytics, uh, we can actually make a piece of this a whole lot better. There's some low-hanging fruit there. I still believe it. Great. Um, I think we'll wrap it up, but I do have a lightning round ready for you. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to pick me. your favorite mode. You just have to say the first thing that comes to you. Ah, uh, okay. Roller skates or jet ski? Roller skates. Ooh, not, what I, <laughs> not what I expected. Uh, pogo stick or electrified unicycle? Electrified unicycle. Hyperloop or jetpack? Anything but hyperloop. The jetpack. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, I think that's a pretty good way to wrap this one up, right? Um, so, BB and K, Greg, um, how can people find you online? Uh, at Smarter Transpo. Great. And uh, David, how can people find you online? 
Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at David Zipper. And if you're seeing the articles I referenced, they're all available online at www.davidzipper.com. Great. Um, and I'm Greg Rogers at AV Greg R. Um, follow the Mobility Podcast at Mobility Podcast. Um, you can also find all of our, web- all of our um, episodes on our website, mobilitypodcast.com. Uh, thanks, guys. Thank you, David. And uh, we'll talk to everyone soon. Thank you, guys. This was fun. Bye.